This is episode 67 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks so much for joining me today. Finishing creative work is challenging because sometimes you can't just push through, as doing so will lead to creative burnout. And yet, you can't give up when it gets hard or you'll never really do the work that matters. Jennifer Loudon joins me in this episode to share how her veering away from creative burnout led to a new body of work and what she's learned along the way about avoiding creative burnout. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. If you're struggling to keep up with processing your email, SaneBox might be just the tool you need. It has saved me hours of time each month, and the amount of peace of mind I get from it is priceless. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder, so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all of the junk so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's this great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. One and done. Just how we like it. Because email can be such a bear and keep you from finishing the stuff that matters, we worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit sanebox.com forward slash giant and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. You don't have to enter the credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com forward slash giant. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm excited to introduce you to Jennifer Loudon. Jennifer is a personal growth pioneer who helped launch the self-care movement with her first book, The Woman's Comfort Book. She's the author of seven additional books on well-being and whole living. The Couple's Comfort Book, The Pregnant Woman's Comfort Book, The Woman's Retreat Book, Comfort Secrets for Busy Women, The Life Organizer, and A Year of Daily Joy. There are about a million copies of her books in print in nine languages. Jennifer has spoken around the U.S., Canada, and Europe, written a national magazine column for Martha Stewart magazine, been profiled or quoted in dozens of major magazines, and appeared on hundreds of TV and radio shows, even on Oprah. Jennifer has been teaching retreats and leading workshops since 1992 and creating vibrant online communities and innovating learning experiences since 2000. She married her second husband at 50 and is the very proud mom of Lillian and very proud bonus mom to Aiden. Jen, thanks so much for the great work you do in the world and for showing up today. Well, Charlie, thanks for being Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Well, you already know I'm a major fan of yours. Some of my listeners may not know who you are and kind of where you got to where you are today. So let's go back to your origins as a writer. Like what got you started writing at, you know, your first book? Uh, Early midlife crisis in my 20s. Um, I was pursuing a career as a screenwriter, and I was really, really unhappy. Um, and now I could tell you a million reasons why I was was unhappy, but then all I knew was I felt 
desperately stuck. Um, I was rewriting the same two pages of the screenplay that was sort of due. I sort of had a career. I sort of had an agent. Um, I'd sold one thing um, to date and I couldn't write that screenplay. And I literally at that point in my life literally couldn't move. I had a skiing accident. My leg was in a brace. I was living in a really tiny uh, one bedroom apartment. My car had been wrecked by my boyfriend's roommate. <laughs> it was in the shop for two months. I mean, kind of you can look at it as like I was really stuck. <laughs> wow, that's a pretty epic mid-quarter life crisis, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I was about 25 too. And um, there was a lot of inner talk at that in my head saying you need to give yourself a break. You're pushing yourself too hard. You're putting everything on finishing the screenplay and everything on selling it for $400,000. That's just the number in my head because I had some friends who graduated from film school and they had sold screenplays for $400,000. So I'm like, damn it, if they can do it, I can do it. And um, I would say to that voice in my head, I think we could all relate. Yeah, yeah. When I finish the screenplay and sell it for $400,000, then I will be nicer to myself. And finally, one day, I couldn't stand it anymore. And I called a friend who was desperately envious of because she had a better agent than I did, and she'd sold the treatment. And I said, I'm going to quit writing for a month. And she was like, you know, like, okay, and I'm going to have a chicken sandwich for lunch, <laughs> right? Yep. No big deal for her. Um, but when I hung up the he uh, phone, I felt this huge sense of it, probably the first time in my life of real surrender. I, of course, I didn't call it that at the time. And the title for the first book came into my head um, very clearly, Charlie, as if you would say it to me now. Um, so it was a little bit of, I think, di divine grace or deep, listening to the unconscious or like whatever frame we want to put on it. And that started uh, the road that I'm still walking today. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty radical jump from like screenwriting to, you know, writing a personal development book. <laughs> no kidding. I didn't even read them. <laughs> I poo-pooed them. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, so I'm really curious about this transition here um, because, you know, so much of our creative work happens in the way that you just mentioned, like we're stuck, we're stuck, we're stuck. Mm. And then there's, you know, there's the breakdown that leads to the breakthrough, right? Which is kind of the story that you have. And then it's uh -huh. sort of the, you know, another pattern is there's a set to the side and then you realized you were making it be something that it didn't need to be, uh -huh. you know, which is different than the breakdown, the breakthrough pathway. There's all sort of ways in which we have these um, creative genesis. Um, how like, so you're writing a screen, a, a screenplay, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, switch to writing this book. Like, how does one make that transition? You know? Well, I think I, I always want to caution when we look back at a story and this story is like 25, more than 25 years old now. Right. I was 25, 26 in the South, probably 25. I'm 53 now. Right. So all, we can, we just keep interpreting and inter reinterpreting our past. Um, but it took me two years to write the proposal for that book. I kept wanting to go back to being a screenwriter. I wrote two more screenplays. I kept wanting to go back to the way the thing that I had wanted and it didn't work for a variety of reasons. Again, much more complicated than I knew at the time. Um, so I, I think when we are presented with a radical shift, um, if I could go back to that 25 year old, <laughs> I would say, okay, uh, let's, call, let's calm down. Let's slow down. And who can mentor us in this? 
where can we get help? Um, but remember, this was in 80, whatever, 85. So there weren't, there was no internet there. I, you know, I did find mentors um, along the way that helped dramatically. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think there's an easy way through these radical shifts. Um, and we have to rebuilding the practices to have the capacity to shift. And I didn't have, I had very little idea of that at the time. Did you happen to experience another one of those shifts in your career where it's like, I'm going this direction and I need to pivot and go this other direction that, I mean, maybe not as massive because that's an industry shift, right? You shifted from one industry to another. And sometimes in our body of work, we shift from one focus to another, which is a mm -hmm. different shift, but it's still really important. So talk to us about some other shifts. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to write a, kind of a memoir about just this thing <laughs> and these moments in my life and other people's lives when we make these shifts. And, um, I think the other big, there's a new, numerous ones in my personal life as well as my uh, creative life. But another one would be when I gave up my brand, Comfort Queen, uh, which had arisen from a body of about, I think at that point, four books I had written. The Woman's Comfort book became a bestseller, word of mouth. Um, and, and I started to get a lot of uh, calls to speak and teach and lead retreats. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, at that point, I think I might have been 28. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> so I jumped into that. And then that became um, licensed products and a big website and all this other stuff and spokesperson deals. But there was a hollowness for me. Um, again, I didn't understand it fully at the time. I may understand it now, subject to change. So that was a shift for me from going from comfort queen to just being Jennifer Loudon and beginning to explore a more nuanced body of work. Um, so that's not as extreme a story, but boy, did it feel as extreme in my body and my mind, you know? Because I, I mean, you know this. I used to get phone calls and someone would say, hey, come be a spokesperson for us. We'll pay you $40,000 for three days' work, right? I mean, it didn't happen maybe once a year, but it, I got speaking gigs. I mean, all of that went away when I dropped that brand. So I knew that that was going to happen, but it was super important for my um, some sense of allegiance to something that was calling me. At the same time, I think it was overly extreme and I probably didn't need to do it, but... <laughs> Well, the it there is completely distancing from your brand or what's the it there, just to be clear? The it that I didn't need to do? Yes. Just distancing from my brand. One of the things I've learned since then is your brand can become whatever you want it to be. And I saw it as more of a prison. Uh, I also didn't like having a brand name that sounded like a mattress. <laughs> yeah. That, that that would be a problem, you know? And, and like, you know, people always expected me about 10 years older than I was and to wear like crushed flowing velvet. And, you know, I'm, I'm fairly irreverent, as you all can tell. And I curse, which I'll try not to do. And I'm spunky and I'm funny. And that was getting edited out too much. So, so there was some truth in it. But I, I think I could have just said, hey, this is where we're going. And people would have gone with me. And many of them did. Yeah, I remember us having a few conversations years ago, and I was like, I want more bouncy gin, because I knew, yeah. right? I remember that. <laughs> I want more bouncy gin, because I got to see the off-screen gin, gin right, right. the more polished, you know, yeah, and right. um, we get to see more bouncy gin now, which is fantastic. Which, if I can just comment on that for, for anybody listening, when you start something 
when you're younger and you don't know what the hell you're doing, you get, you can take on a lot of stories, which may or may not be expectations, your employees, your customers have for you about how you're supposed to be. And it may be that that needs to burn down more than your job or your brand. Absolutely. You know, this reminds me of, I believe, the conversation that I had with Carla Bernberg um, earlier, because she um, had the Misfit brand, right? And so, and she became Carla Bernberg, right? And so, it's a similar sort of career morph, um, you know, in, in that way, but it's largely... Um, you know, in retrospect, I think what it is, is when we shift brands like that into our own sort of Charlotte Gilkey versus Productive Flourishing, it's like, oh, yeah, oh, I can be me. And it's like, well, no one ever said you couldn't be you. <laughs> yeah. Right? But, but sometimes you have to take that outside. I just, I mean, I watch this so much with people I work with, right? We like just, just twist ourselves around the axle over and over again. And then we figure it out, quote marks in the air. And everyone around us is like, Oh, no kidding. That's all you've been doing all along. <laughs> like it took you six months to figure that out. I read oh, it. Six I knew. Years. Yeah, six ten years. years. It's like know? three pages onto your blog. I knew what you're about, Charlie. And I'm like, I, yeah. I've been doing this for ten years. I don't know yeah. what it's about, right? Yeah. It truly is. It is a. It is a service that we need to do. It's one of the things that my brain trust, the mastermind group I've been part of for so many years. That's one of the things that we really help each other with. Is over and over again saying, oh, no, really, you're already doing that. You don't need to burn everything down and start over again. You just need to say these three sentences or you need to just be a little bit more precise. Yeah. Um, or just stop fighting yourself sometimes. Yeah, very good. Very, <laughs> very true. Yeah. Alrighty. So we're talking about the shift from the comfort queen, which now that you've mentioned that it was a mattress, it does sound like a mattress. I can't yeah. unhear it now. Um, um, what new elements did that? allow you or did you allow yourself to start introducing into your body of work that that you felt constrained by under the comfort queen oh god that's a really good question charlie i i think the broadest answer would be that i stopped talking much about self-care um the woman's comfort book was the first book outside of the recovery movement you mostly for sexual abuse to talk about self-care and the timing of it was just you know, it was the zeitgeist. But now, like, self-care is deeply part of the culture. Lots and lots of people write and talk about it. And I was both bored with it. And um, I don't like how it gets talked about. It gets fetishized and turned into a way for primarily women to collapse uh, a kind of an, ex not an excuse, but it can become a kind of convoluted conversation that keeps people from having building the courage and strength and practices to really show up in life. And so I wanted to align myself more with that conversation. That's interesting because in the past I've had some females come to me as, because we do, a, we both do a lot of work on creativity, mm -hmm. right? And they're like, well, your approach to creativity doesn't seem very like embracing for, for women. Like mm -hmm. it's not very comforting, like it, you know, and it has <laughs> stretch into their growth zones and things like that. And that just doesn't really resonate for me. And it was always interesting. I was like, oh, I didn't know this was a gendered conversation about creativity. Right? I, think, I think it is sometimes. You do have a very masculine, um, you and our, our mutual friend, Jeffrey Davis. And I learn from both of you, but sometimes it's, it's too much for me. It's, it, and the reason why is because I have a very driven competitive side and I have to manage that. And I think... That's where the self-care is so important. There's a, there's a 
it's not balance for God's sakes, but it's this, it's an ongoing conversation and awareness. And if I'm not careful, boy, my masculine side will take over and I'm like, <laughs> off to the races. Let me tell you an example. I've learned to run. I've started running since I moved to Colorado. Um, nobody could be more astonished than, than me about this. And so the, we're training for a half marathon in March. And so we had our longest, I had my longest run on Saturday. It was eight miles and I was going to run by myself because my husband's, uh, a foot taller than I am and therefore much faster than I am. So he'll go and I'll be behind him, you know, boop, 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 like, <laughs> and five steps for one of his. Um, so, but then at the last minute, somebody else wanted to run with us. Um, so she and I ran and we ran slower cause she hasn't been running as fast as much. And um, it was really doable. And instead of being overwhelmed and scared and getting to the end of the eight miles, totally exhausted, it was no big deal. So that to me was a lesson in that aware dance of awareness that I'm always trying to learn. Does that make any sense? It does make sense. Um, I wanted to actually talk a little bit more about the competitiveness, right? <laughs> you do that too, right? <laughs> right. Um, how do you want to you come over for dinner with Bob? He'll really love to talk about that. <laughs> I will cash that check, Jen. Like, I will totally come over and talk to him about it. Um, and, uh, you know, how does your competitive nature trip you up? And how do you leverage that competitive nature? I mean, it's both. So the way it trips me up is I have a limited amount of energy in the day. And it is definitely a little bit less in my 50s. And I will push myself a little too far and then I get jangled and uh, it's hard for me to calm down for the evening and restore myself um, and that then kind of it's almost like it's almost like it's a chain that starts to bite into me you know and then it sort of kind of it, 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 it makes me then not be able to keep up that sustained effort sustained effort is still so hard for me like I'll have our four days of really good work and then I'll be like Fuck it! <laughs> yep. And that's not good. Like, that's not good for me. I think for some people work really well in that. That do a lot, collapse, go party, you know, go lay on the beach. I don't. I'm like, a, like a, I'm a turtle. So it gets in my way that way. And then it will trigger my comparisons to other people. <laughs> that's not good for me. No, not at all. So what are the ways in which it helps you? Oh man, I ran eight miles on Saturday. <laughs> there we go. I started running like less than three months ago. Um, like I wrote two fantastic pieces yesterday. One that comes out in the Teach Now blog soon. One that came out last week. Like they were really good. Um, and I'm like puttering away in a regular way most days on that memoir. And it's going to get to a first draft. It really is. So there's a... I don't know. There's a determination. That's not very sexy, but yeah, that's, it's almost like that word discipline. That's also not sexy. Yeah. Yeah. But man, I tell you, it is all, I wasted so many years waiting for the Oprah thing to happen again. Right. Or waiting for the best selling book thing to happen. It's the kiss. Of, it was almost the kiss of death for me to have so much success so early. Uh, it took me a long time to go, whoa, I don't have to wait for anybody. I can make my own business happen. I don't have to wait for the speaking speakers bureau to call the contract for that thing to happen. I'll just kind of make it myself. You know, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because 
you know, you remind me of it's you and Susan Piver who had yeah. the Oprah effect, you know? She, she, had, she and I had the exact same experience. Yeah. And so I think the advantage is, you know, for instance, people that are just getting started, there's no Oprah to pick you anymore. Right? True. Yeah. It's very right. good news. Very good news. It's very, very good news. But we're all sort of like, eh, and it's like, you know, you hear so much about pick yourself and it's like, well, you have to, right? Because <laughs> not, not, not only is it a confidence thing, it's like there's no one out there. Right, that's going to pick you and make you a successful person, and and you don't go through some of the growth challenges, which you know I understand. You and I have talked about this before. It can seem sort of like one of those like lives of celebrities, like oh, woe is me. I was on the I was on the Oprah show, but seriously, that can tank your creativity, like and put you in a box because you're like, how am I going to get that? Like, you have such a high mm-hmm. that anything you do after that is compared to that, and you know you know it better than I do. Well, no, you know, it's, I've seen it though with so many women I work with, with writers that I work with who are also women. And I remember one story about this really talented woman. She didn't write for years because a professor told her how good she was. And she was, that was it. It was just, you know, so praise, success can get us maybe even more than criticism. Um, I think we all expect to fail in a way, like at a level, like we all like, this might not work out, you know, so and so forth. So that's the fear we have. Right. (laughs) And we know, we know, we know how to expect that one and deal with that one. Right. Um, The fan down by the river. Right. That's the (laughs) one that we know about ourselves. Right. It's this other one. Like, what do you do when you write this phenomenal work and it distances you from everything you've ever known? Right. And I, I, I was thinking about that this morning. I had an image uh, and it wasn't, I don't even know what an image, what it was an image of come to me meditation this morning. And I had sort of a conversation with it spontaneously and, and sort of this image was sort of of a deity, maybe like a Dakina. And it was sort of asking me, and I say sort of, cause it was all very sort of vague and um, like, what do you really want? And I think there's a way that we have to learn to work with that energy, uh, literally on an energetic level. I don't mean woo-woo. I mean energy in our body from a physical kinesthetic point of view to bear being bigger, to bear being seen, to whatever words each of you would use, you know, to bear that and expand and develop a body that can let it be, let it be, let it be there, let it be bigger, let it move through you. And I think that constriction can um, really happen when that kind of success kind of comes in, even if you have been working for it. And then we don't realize the constriction has come in and then we, make up a lot of stories about it. Yeah. It's the stories we make up and then make true that are mm-hmm. like, we make them true, but regardless of whether they're true or false of the world, they still do the same work to us. Right. They do. They do. They change us. They shape us. Alrighty. So what are you really like jazzed about writing? Now I know you have the memoir, right? And memoir. My memoir. memoir right? I'll, say it, I'll say it in that way. And most people I know writing a memoir is a, it's really a love hate thing, right? Once you get into it, it's, but oh, you, it's mostly hate. Okay. I was being generous. This is why I don't want to write a memoir. Right. So, um, um, but aside from that, what are you really excited about working on right now? What? Yeah. Um, well, I will say that there's, as you asked me that question, the memoir says, you better freaking talk about me. <laughs> um, and so what I'm excited about that project is um, the, pe- I'm, I'm excited about learning that meaning in a book can come from the structure, not the meaning that I 
tell the reader is happening. So that's been huge for me. I'm really loving teaching other people that now that I've learned that. And then I'm also really loving the interstitions or interstices or whatever you have, I show that word, that are going to go in between um, about other people's stories about how we deal with these these moments of, of burning something down, of leaving something, of destroying something or not. Um, so that's exciting to me. Um, the other thing I'm excited about is I feel like you keep using that body of work thing. And there's a body of work around women, creative women getting stuff done that I've been De- developing very slowly over many years and it feels like it might be coming together um that it might have a a form that's almost like it, it keeps like almost coming into view and then I kind of like I'm not quite sure how it is right it's a little too complicated right now so that's exciting and I'm excited about um leading more in-person writing things this year let's roll back to the um rolling back rolling back women getting stuff done um, what's, I don't want to say what's different about your concepts of women getting stuff done. I just, what are some of the dynamics of women and creativity and getting stuff done that you think are under addressed? Ah, this cycle that women get in, which is, and I, I, again, I know, I know men do it. I just think the language around it maybe is different. Feeling in the body might be different, but it starts with like, oh my God, I want this thing. No, no, it's not okay. I can't, I can't. Oh my God, that's too big. That, oh, that, I couldn't do that. It's too late. I'm, uh, oh, I'm totally overwhelmed. Okay, I'm going to do some research. Oh, oh God, I'm even more overwhelmed. I can't do this. Okay, save me. So they sign up for the $5,000 mastermind program or they buy $30,000 worth of books on Amazon or they... You know, and then, of course, it doesn't save them because there is no saving. Uh, It took me a lot of years to figure that out, everybody. I promise you, there is no saving. It's not necessary, and it doesn't work even if it was necessary. Um, And then they collapse, and they either go do the thing that, and this is, I think, particular to women more than men. They do those things that are very available to women, over-parent the children, take over all the elder care instead of asking the family to help, Um, volunteer until it's coming out of your head, right? My mother-in-law, they moved to be with us before we moved for two years and part of the reason tiny reason in the reason they moved was so she could get out of all of her volunteer obligations because she couldn't say no or they take the job that's just like the job they left but then they take another one just like it and then they don't have time to pursue the thing that started this whole cycle or they just collapse and watch netflix for a year because downton abbey has really got the secret to life. <laughs> more like the Maggie Smith character you got it made that's interesting because I think the root I mean obviously there's some self-esteem and self-confidence issues there right that it's easy and you and I both said like look you got to start saying no to these other things so you can say yes to yourself right Mm. easy in theory or simple in theory right in practice not so much right super super slippery super Super, so much fun to say yes to all those things that are distractions. They make me feel good about myself. They make other people compliment me. And then I don't have to look in the mirror and go, what am I really wanting in this life? I don't have to confront that question every morning. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you a broad sort of sociological, philosophical question, but it's like... I've seen the same sort of thing where men tend to have an easier job of being like, I'm going to do my thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what I'm, I'm here to do the thing, right? So we're very mission goal oriented mm-hmm. in that sense. 
And there's a developing of that. Um, I don't want to use the word creative backbone, right? That sounds too harsh, but there's that sense of like, here's what I'm here to do. And I can negotiate the rest of my life around that. And like, I need my room of my own, right. To do these mm-hmm. sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, how, you know, as you've been working with women, how have you helped them like really honor that space and start um, saying yes to themselves? You know, I think part of the way it happens is by coming either in a, a program I have, not a program, but it's like a, a gathering once a week called the Oasis or to one of my retreats because then they, they hear other women's stories and it normalizes it. There's a huge pathologization, pathologization, making pathology. Making a pathology out of um, are very, in some ways, hardwired or hardwired women to connect and to care. And we're needing to learn a blend of skills and to honor that blend. And it's still really, really new. Um, so taking the pathology out and seeing the mirror of other people in here, I think is actually one of the most powerful things. I also think I'm modeling. You know, I actually don't have that. Um, I have had too much masculine. So I wouldn't say too much, but okay. Yeah, I would say there's times in my life I've had too much masculine. I kind of look back and go, oh, where, where was my friends? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I wasn't having friend time. I was having work time. Um, so I think I, mo- I try to model that. I think having models is important. Um, and then I think really learning in a deep way to, to trust what you really want to create and, tr- and feel the love for it. Like you feel the love for your dogs that have to go for a walk or your baby that, you know, needs, not your baby, like baby, baby, but you know, I have a 21 year old baby, that kind of baby who needs mm-hmm. texts returned. Um, I think cultivating that devotion at a physical level can be really powerful. You mentioned this, arc that women go on like you know it starts out really big so on and so forth and then it gets smaller and then you research and then all sorts of things and then you kind of wove in life purpose like what am I here to do mm-hmm. which is a really big and scary concept for a lot of people like what am I here to do I don't know right um read more go to the next <laughs> workshop you know maybe Tony Robbins knows I'll go talk. Yeah, Tony knows. <laughs> Tony definitely knows. um so you know there's that and then there's um you know, I think you called it um, the thread as going back to William Stafford's idea. Yes, yes, right? yes. So let's talk about the difference between, you know, the thread and this big, scary life purpose thing. So to me, life purpose makes me want to throw up in my mouth a little bit. Um, it's just so set in stone. It's so, uh, it's just that to me, it's like you're approaching it completely from the wrong end of the telescope. And the thread poem that, uh, which if y'all want to, um, you know, actually, I can probably call it up right here and yeah. find it and read it to you. Um, yeah, it'll be in a show notes, too. So there we go. Okay, perfect. Um, it's The Way It Is by William Stafford. Um, the thread and the way he categorizes in that poem, it's something that never leaves you. And it's something, there's a mystery. There's a mystery to it. There's a way that you're groping for it, but it's never, like life purpose sounds like, and here, like Moses, is the stone tablet with your life purpose neatly carved in a lovely calligraphy on the stone tablet. And I'm like, don't relate to that as my experience or or the people I've worked with for all these years. It's more of this 
ever evolving, ever groping towards. And there's a feeling when I'm holding the thread and there's a way that I can't let go of it, but I can turn away from it. I can deny it, but you know what? It's still in my hand. Um, so to me, it's really very simple. Am I groping for it? <laughs> There's got to be a nicer word than that. Am I? Well, so you can get away with saying <laughs> groping for it without going into it. I'm not even going to try. No, you need to find a different word. I'll be reaching softly or something. <laughs> with great care. Um, is there, am I in conversation with it? Am I, am I taking action? Am I reviewing where those actions got me? Um, that's all I know. That's all I know. And I know the other thing that I do know about this is that I see people waste huge chunks of their lives on this life purpose question. It makes me really sad. Yeah, it makes me really, really sad. It reminds me, I'm going to paraphrase here. Uh, it's a, one of, a, you know, another one of Joseph Campbell's quotes. It's, um, oh, yeah, I love that. I'll paraphrase <laughs> it, but it's basically, if you know where the road's going, you're on the wrong road, right? Yeah. Um, because the, the real roads that we should belong on, like we co-create them, we make them by walking. That's a um, Coelho um, quote there. But, you know, I'll, I'll share a story here, Jen, because I was at um, the Think Better, Live Better conference with Mark and Angel weekend before last. And I was talking to a participant after one of the workshops that I did. And she's like, you know, I'm really here to really do what I was meant to do. Right? <laughs> and she set it up and it just wrong. It, it's like, you know, just a suggestion here. Cause she didn't ask for coaching. And you know, <laughs> about that. Yep. Right? Um, I said, you know, maybe rather than this whole meant for thing, just how about asking what you can do now that seems like, you know, where are you going? What story are you writing right now? Because there may not be a mint to out there, right? And I think like you, that we spend way too much time trying to figure out what we're going to be when we're growing up rather than just growing up, you know? Amen, brother. Amen. And that meant to thing, that's so dangerous. Oh my God. Talk about giving away your agency and your ability to choose. Um, I, and I'm not, I, I some super woo-woo experiences in my life. I have, I have a friend here who's written this great memoir. Uh, it's called Broken Open, a Love Story about her time with this Arapaho um, horse whisperer shaman. And man, she'll tell you a story to make your hair stand on end. You know, just one example. That was from last night, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that I don't think there's a lot going on I can't see, but it isn't my business. My business is what feels true, what feels right, how can I serve myself and others today? And that meant to, that, that screwed me up. Because yeah, I don't know, I'm not being very articulate, but stay away from it. <laughs> meant to is one of those words like should. Like whenever it comes up in your language, just like really think about what it means, right? And what, what story you're placing on yourself. And meant to has a power outside of you like should does. Like who's saying meant to? Is that God? Is that karma? Like and what do I know of that source? If I do, if you do, hallelujah, man. <laughs> you know, as I think about this, because I've been thinking a lot about the concept of wind horse from the Shambhala tradition, right? Um, mm -hmm. And do you know much about wind horse? No, tell me. All right. So wind horse is, um, it's when you have basically, mm -hmm. it's like the spirit of the goodwill divine behind you and all of your actions. And so when you're experiencing wind horse, you, you just have this power rolling through you and actions seem really effortless, so on and so forth, although you're doing really great things, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the notions is that, um, and that's from the Shambhala tradition, you might call it like being with the Tao from the Taoist tradition, right? Mm -hmm. There's this idea of being in alignment with 
like universe or divine spirit or something like that, which, which has power, right? Mm-hmm. It does have power. And I've experienced flow periods where I'm like, I like, I'm, I'm not the one doing this, like mm-hmm. it's just kind of showing up and mm-hmm. you know, I just happen to be the vehicle at this point in time. Right. Um, sounds very woo. I know, but there we go. Um, and so I think there's this time to recognize when you're in that source and not over questioning it and not over like making a big story out of it and be like, you know what is, it was a current running through me. I was plugged into the wall. I'm not plugged into it now. I'll be plugged into it some other time, right? But it's not like that's my one plug-in. That's the only thing that I can do is recreate that type of experience, you know? I like that. That's very, very, my very much my experience as well. And I think if we wait around to be plugged in again, man, our lives can pass by. And I also, there's also a concept, just again, thinking of my friend Lisa Jones last night, um, and talking about Stan, the shaman uh, horse whisperer man, he's, he's uh, long gone now, passed on, but uh, he would tell her things like you have to, you have to move towards the creator. Um, so I think the same thing about our creative work, we have to move towards it, you know, just, and it's a, a lot of days, I'll tell you, it is, it is painful for me. It's not easy. And I used to question that. Is it not meant to be? Am I not meant to be a writer? It's like, Oh, well, this seems to be what I keep showing up to do. (laughs) If something else comes along and says, hey, let's go sell cheese. And there is a really good cheese emporium just a mile from my house now. (laughs) Um, I'll go sell cheese. You know, I've been talking a lot more about thrashing and the thrash that shows up when you do creative work, right? And you just kind of fall into it. And the reason I want to talk about that is also to normalize this idea that I don't know where we get it, that if it's hard, we should be doing something else. I know. I think it's a totally law of attraction, new agey thing. That's what I see. Like if it's meant to be, it's supposed to all flow and click into place. Yeah, but when you look at some of you, it's so dangerous because when you look at a lot of the great work that you'll do and like really showing up, man, you'll, you'll have to tussle and tangle, right? I mean, it's not one of those things where it's like, oh, I just sat down and, and it can be that you're the channel for something and you got it flow, but man, when you're out of that, like you got to show back up, you know? Yep. And that's not easy. No, it's not. I did my procrastination Boy, it can be so creative in itself. <laughs> Just around the memoir. I don't procrastinate around other things. I procrastinate about the stuff that really matters. There we go. The more you yeah. matters, the more you'll yeah. thrash, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so here we are, you know, we're sort of, we talked about maybe, maybe not having this idea of a life purpose that might trip you up and maybe not neat, not being plugged into the muse, you know? And then there you are with the creative work again, right? And when you start talking about grit or compassionate grit or showing up, like, you know, what would you say to someone that's in that space or, you know, not in the should space, they're not in the meant to space, Mm -hmm. they're also not in the, like, I'm on fire to do this space either. Welcome. Come on in. (laughs) I have a spare part of my desk right here. Come on over and let's work together. Um, I I think that's where we need practice, uh, ritual, uh, habit, whatever words, combination of words you like. Um, I'm a a huge uh, proponent of that. And I'm a huge uh, thrasher against it. Um, So... I really have found how important it is to have, I call, I, I just called it this. I didn't realize there's actually people called it this and there's research behind it, but I called it a keystone habit or a keystone action that I do um, every morning, five days a week, not seven days a week before I go down the stairs. Um, and that is, this is weird. I do 10 squats. 
Uh, and the reason is, is because I have some back hip things and it's the most effective thing for it. And I, and I freaking hate doing it. So as I do it, I'm like, I can do all the things I don't want to do today. I like, I pump myself up and then I go downstairs, like have a big glass of water. I greet the Bob, the Bobster as we call him, who's already usually up and um, on the couch doing his reading time. And then I go meditate. And that's just the flow, right? And if anything messes it up, oh, it's painful. So I got to make sure, you know, the computer's put away. Like there's no laptop out there on the kitchen counter. And sometimes I do have to stop and I go, oh my God, I forgot to send the email to the team. They've got to have it because they're on East Coast time. And then, but if the habit flow is strong enough, then I'll keep going. And then it's make um, caffeine and come upstairs and write until I'm starving and take a break and eat and then write some more. And then I have, I have habits around that too. Why do you resist the structure of it? Oh, it's just my nature. I, I, I think that structure sucks. <laughs> it's just like and deeply ingrained in me. Like, it should all be free flow. I should get to do what I want every day. Yeah, it's totally just me. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think it's just you, right? No, I know other people do too. But it really has no basis in like, I wasn't abused about structure. I wasn't like made to like get, you know, eat all the food at my table, you know, plate or anything like that. I just don't like it. Um, so I, but I also know through trial and error and trial and error oh, that I have, that's the only way that I'm going to um, get stuff done. And then I'm going to, and I feel so much better and you build self trust through these habits. And that, that is more, I think beneficial than this idea of self esteem. You build self-trust and you build mastery and mastery mm -hmm. makes you feel good, right? It's one of those, it core, one of those core drives as, as brought up in, in Dan Pink's drive and you don't get mastery by just thinking about doing stuff, right? Damn it. I got to do it. <laughs> that took me a long time to figure out too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, and the reason, okay, so, you know, there's, there's a selfish reason I say that because sometimes people will come and they'll be like, you know, there seems to be a lot of structure here and I really don't jive with that. Like, is there a way... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. without structure to do this yeah. like you know there might be there I, i'm just not you know most of the peak performing creatives that i encounter have some type of ritual keystone habits habit stack and there's some type of anchors throughout their day that that ground them so that they can do their best work right yeah and so i get that a lot too um and what i i, I I always think the best thing is that people have to learn through trial and error, but are you paying attention to what you're trying and, and, and what the feedback loop is? So I just try to get people to pay attention. Like, okay, let's try a week where you're do your little keystone habit or action first thing and you don't turn and you turn off. And the other thing you'll do is turn off all devices at 10, nine o'clock and not have them in your bedroom. Let's just try that. And then for a week, just do whatever the heck you want. And whatever you feel like, and just see, just notice, get, you know, get feedback from the system, not from what you're thinking is working. And you may have to do that for, I don't know, 10 years. Okay, cool. <laughs> what else are you doing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I exaggerate, but only a little bit. Some of us, myself included, are super thick. Um, the other thing I have found, though, is some people like to have a little like a little bowl of, of habits or rituals that they pick out of. So like, I'm not going to meditate every morning. Sometimes I'm going to journal or sometimes I'm going to dance. And if that works for you and it's not using up a lot of cognitive resources to choose, which it totally does for me, mm -hmm. that's why I do the same thing every day. Um, I want that cognitive resources for writing, then hallelujah, you know? Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, 
while you're paying attention, like notice the amount of decision fatigue that you'll get from all yeah. those micro. What am I going to do today? I'm not sure. I'll, I could yeah. do this. I could do that. And then you run around the house for th- like 30 minutes trying to figure out what to do and oh, you're yeah. yourself out. Right. Yeah. Um, I was teasing Jim, but it's actually the truth. I've got um, my, you know, my Charlie Gilkey jump shirt on. Right. Um, and I'm like, I don't have to decide what to wear in the morning. Right. That's one less decision that I have to make. Right. And it yeah. adds up all of these little micro decisions add up. And so if you know, you're going to wake up in the morning, you're going to say hi to the bobster, you're going to do your 10 squats, you're going to meditate, then you're going to go up. Like there's a whole lot you don't have to figure out anymore. It's so important. It's so important. It's so important. I mean, I can't stress to you all how important it is. And you probably have read all the books and you've heard it, but are you really applying it? And I wear the same three things. I have the three pairs of yoga pants, yoga-esque pants, and today I decided to put something different on, and that took a lot of energy, (laughs) and I just wanted to, I was sort of like, oh, I want to kind of feel prettier today, Um, I think I'll put some makeup on, but I was like, what am I doing, you know, and this is taking time and energy and, 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 and cognitive resources, so I rarely do that, although I really do like my new tights that I have on. I was joking with Angela, you know, she cuts my hair. So I cut my hair and then she finishes the rest uh-huh. of it. Like, you know, I saved like a good 300 bucks a year, like on hair products and haircuts and things like that. Not to mention time because I don't have to mess with it in the morning. So there yeah. we go. I'm like, shaving my head. I'm going to get a haircut today. I'm shaving my head. <laughs> you know, this might be the reverse of the groping thing. It might have a different, um, it might have a different impact. Like your mileage may vary with that one, Jen. I'm just saying. <laughs> Especially since I have a big dent in the back of my head. <laughs> I'm not going to ask about that. <laughs> Don't ask. <laughs> Alrighty. So if people remember nothing else about you and your body of work from this episode, what would you want that to be? I love the term compassionate grit. It came to me in yoga once. I was thinking, uh, the thought was compassion, uh, uh, grit without compassion is just grind. And I've known that grind place. And I've known the overly compassionate place. Oh, honey, it's just too hard. That's okay. You don't have to do any more today. So that in-between place, that's where I'd like to leave you with. Like, how do you speak to yourself with so much kindness? Acknowledge the fact that other creatives are struggling just like you all around the world in a billion different languages and places. And stay with it. And how do you create containers for yourself? So you really see, you said you do this today and you did it. Hallelujah. That's fantastic, Jen. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's great to see your uh, handsome shaved head face. <laughs> shaved head face. I'll take it. <laughs> Bye, everybody. All righty, Creative Giant. So you heard it from Jen. What can you do today to cultivate a little more compassionate grit, right? Not push yourself too hard, but not give up on the greatness that you have within you. Um, And be careful about those meant to be's and shoulds as well. Mm -hmm. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.